Let's open the Scriptures this afternoon to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. In the first place, Ephesians 2. And then we'll read a few verses from 1 John chapters 2 and 3. But we begin in Ephesians 2, where the apostle writes about God's work in us, His sovereign work in us, and then he includes a mention of good works, and that'll be one of the focal points of the sermon this afternoon. The Holy Spirit through Paul in Ephesians 2 says this, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." Let's turn now to 1 John, John's first letter, starting at the end of chapter 1, or rather chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 28. And here the Apostle John describes what the Christian life looks like. And now, little children, abide in Him, and that is in Christ so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I invite you to turn with me in the book of praise to page 508, where we find the church's confession, our confession, on sanctification, what the Bible teaches about our life of good works. Continuing then in our preaching through these articles, Article 24, we believe that this true faith worked in man by the hearing of God's Word and by the operation of the Holy Spirit regenerates him and makes him a new man. It makes him live a new life and frees him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, it is not true that this justifying faith makes man indifferent to living a good and holy life. On the contrary, without it, no one would ever do anything out of love for God, but only out of self-love or fear of being condemned. It is therefore impossible for this holy faith to be inactive in man, for we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love. This faith induces man to apply himself to those works which God has commanded in His Word. These works, proceeding from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable in the sight of God, since they are all sanctified by His grace. Nevertheless, they do not count toward our justification, for through faith in Christ we are justified even before we do any good works. Otherwise, they could not be good any more than the fruit of a tree can be good unless the tree itself is good. Therefore, we do good works, but not for merit. For what could we merit? We are indebted to God rather than He to us for the good works we do, since it is He who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let us keep in mind what is written, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Meanwhile, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is by His grace that He crowns His gifts. Furthermore, Although we do good works, we do not base our salvation on them. We cannot do a single work that is not defiled by our flesh and does not deserve punishment. Even if we could show one good work, the remembrance of one sin is enough to make God reject it. We would then always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be constantly tormented if they did not rely on the merit of the death and passion of our Savior. That's as far as our confession goes. 
Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, so you're a Christian. Now what? You believe in Jesus Christ. You confess Him as your Savior and Lord. You know your sins are forgiven. You are grateful for that. So now what do you do? Whether you've grown up in the church or whether you entered the church later in life as an adult, either way, there's a process of learning about the Lord Jesus Christ, about His salvation. Eventually, that process comes to a point where you make a responsible, credible profession of faith. So, you, you firmly believe that you have eternal life. Where do you go from there? Is it just a waiting game? Is it just, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back and finish His great work? That's the issue of Article 24. In Articles 21 through 23, we've confessed Christ as the one who makes us righteous in the eyes of the judge who sits in heaven. By way of believing all that Jesus has done for us, we are declared righteous in God's courtroom, which is, of course, wonderful. It's great. This is our, our comfort. This provides assurance. This means we have an amazing future waiting for us after this life. But is that it? Does the gospel mean anything more for here, now, for the rest of our lives on earth? And the answer is, yes, it certainly does. So I bring you this word of the Lord. Christ propels His people to lead a new life. Christ propels His people to lead a new life. We're going to look at the source of that new life, the look of that new life, and the purpose of that new life. Well, Article 24 opens up by mentioning faith. We believe that this true faith regenerates man. So we're saying this true faith, it does something inside a person. Now, to understand this line of thought, we just got to go back a little bit to Article 22, which first brought up true faith. Both there and here, we confess that faith is something that the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts. We saw that this morning out of John 6. Article 22 goes on to speak of this true faith doing something, namely, this faith embraces Jesus Christ with all of His merits, makes Him our own, and does not seek anything besides Him. So, faith connects us to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who because of His righteousness clears us of guilt. And next came Article 23, which paused to expand on, on how Christ makes us righteous before God. And now in Article 24, the Belgic Confession comes right back to this idea of true faith. It picks up that thread 
And we find that this true faith is once again active. This true faith regenerates a person and, and makes that individual a new man or a new woman. So faith embraces the Savior, that's 22, but it doesn't stop there. It pushes on to make you and me new people. The Belgic is quite persistent about this in its confession. This true faith makes him, that's the Christian, live a new life and frees him from the slavery to sin. A little further on, it says that this faith induces man to apply himself to those works which God has commanded in His Word. So, this faith propels us to do good works. Well, that brings up a few questions. Can we really do good works? Can we be free already now in this life from slavery, from the slavery of sin? Do we not confess every Sunday morning that we are sinners, though we are believers? Did we not confess back in Article 14 of the Belgic that something very, very damning and limiting of ourselves, that we had become wicked and perverse, corrupt in all our ways. The heading of Article 14 puts it like this, the creation and fall of man and his incapability of doing what is truly good. But now Article 24 comes and says that man is able to do good works after all. Is there something amiss here? Is, is this correct? Is there not a contradiction? And this idea, this, this idea that there might be a contradiction can be a struggle for sincere believers. We all have a sense of our own corruption, the sin in our heart that, that remains even after coming to faith. We have this sense of how sinful we are in the eyes of the holy God, and our prayers are filled with confessions and admissions of sin. How then can we be expected to do good works? How can we get past the power of sin to obey God in a way which pleases Him? Some find that very hard to believe. Some wince whenever good works are called for among Christians. But brothers and sisters, there, there's no need for wincing and no need to feel a heavy burden on your conscience when you understand that the good, work, good works that God asks of you and me, He actually gives to you and me to do through the ongoing work of His Son. And I wonder if you'd turn with me to Article 14 for a moment, just, just to go back for just a moment. In its very last sentence, page 505, because it hinted at this already, Article 14. Last sentence, for there is no understanding nor will 
conformable to the understanding and will of God unless Christ has brought it about. As he teaches us, apart from me, you can do nothing. That unless is the great unless of the gospel. By nature, that's what Article 14 is getting across, in and of ourselves, it is true. We are dead in sin. Ephesians 2 says that so plainly. We read that. That means we're helpless, powerless, spiritually dead, indeed slaves of sin. That's all we know how to do by nature. But something has happened to us. Paul makes that clear in two, Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of that great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, and here it is, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We are alive. Christ, through the working of His Spirit, planted faith in our hearts, and in that act, raised us up from spiritual deadness. Now we are people who are alive in our hearts toward God. We've got a connection with God. Now, as people alive, the Holy Spirit of Christ is hard at work in us. We begin to think like God thinks. We begin to want what God wants. We begin to do what God is pleased with. Paul brings that home in Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What you do, what I do as a Christian, brothers and sisters, is to press on every day of our life to do the good works that God laid out for us to do. And we do that in the strength of Christ's Spirit. It's so critical to understand that this is all in the Spirit of Christ. It's, it's not in our own energy or willpower. Some Christians hesitate to speak of the obligation to do good works. Some think that they must do these good works out of their own ability and strength, and that gets them down. Others are kind of allergic to the, uh, the idea of obligation. They don't like the idea because they, they think it takes away from the, the grace component. Salvation is all of grace. Don't talk about obligation. It's all grace, so you just live out of grace. We do live out of grace. Let's go back to that first obligation. The folks who tend to picture the saving work of Jesus as, as a mountain too high to climb, they, they tend to have this idea when you talk about good works that the saving work of, of Jesus Christ amounts to Him opening the prison door and setting us free, but now it's up to us to get out there and to remain free. 
It's up to us Christians to remain thankful and not to go back into prison, the prison of sin, and it's all they can do to stay on the other side of those bars. It's up to them, this is what some think, it's up to them not to fall back into jail, the jail of slavery to sin. Well, brothers and sisters, if I thought that way about salvation, I'd be depressed too. But the truth of the Bible is so much different, so wonderfully different. Not only has the Lord Jesus laid down His life to pay for our sins, not only does He give us true faith in our hearts, He, he penetrates into the hardness of our hearts, but He also gives us His Spirit to live inside of us so that we undergo a definite change of heart, of mind, of will, and of action. He doesn't just open the door of the prison, but He takes us by the hand and He ushers us outside and He stays with us. He walks alongside of us and He brings us further into His Father's house and He makes us part of His Father's family and He teaches us and He does more. He enables us and He commands us, yes, but He enables us to act like sons and daughters. The obligation is there. Be holy. Think of 1 Peter. Be holy as I am holy. This is an obligation, but listen to this, brothers and sisters. It's whatever Christ obliges us to do, He also gives us. He, he gives it over as a gift for us. The very thing He commands, He enables us to do. So that's grace, you see. As we do good works, that's, that's God's Holy Spirit working that out in us. That's grace upon grace. We never leave the sphere of grace. That's what Article 24 is getting at. Christ, His work doesn't stop at making us, His, uh, making us righteous in God's eyes, but His work carries on to cause us to live a righteous life. To say it technically, Christ doesn't only justify His people, He also sanctifies them. He goes on to cleanse us from our filthy habits, sinful habits in day-to-day -day life. We confess in Article 24, therefore it is not true that this justifying faith makes man indifferent to living a holy, a good and holy life. It is therefore impossible for this holy faith to be inactive in man, for we do not speak of an empty faith but of what Scripture calls faith expressing itself through love. Therefore, we do good works. That's a big therefore. Because of Christ's work in us, a Christian is different from a non-Christian. Because of Christ. You are different from unbelievers, not only because of what you believe, but also how you live your everyday life. It cannot be any other way. A genuine Christian will be directed, guided by the Spirit of Jesus. He or she will be spurred on by the faith which Christ put in her, his or her heart and will give 
that person will give of him or herself to serve the Lord. Unbelievers don't serve the Lord, but you do, right? That is the direction of your life, isn't it? That you serve the Lord in all things. You can either serve yourself in this life, which is ultimately serving the devil, or you can serve God. How is it then? Whom are you serving? Is this new life that Christ works in you, is it visible for people to see? For the Christian life, the new life, is known by how it looks. The Apostle John tells us that. As we read it in chapters 2 and 3 of his first letter, he begins in chapter 2, verse 29. He says there, if you know that Jesus Christ is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Christ. Notice the action. A follower of Christ practices righteousness. Or you could just say simply, does what is right in the eyes of God. We talked about that last week. That's what righteousness is. John expands on that in chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And here comes the key part. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as Christ is pure. A Christian purifies himself, herself. That's another way of saying that you and I are to cleanse our life from sinful habits. You and I are to make ourselves holy. Again, this is all by the driving power of the Holy Spirit who motivates us, who lives in us, who actually propels us. He's like the engine. By way of true faith, He propels us to this new way of living. Now, we have to be clear about how far John takes this. John is not saying that a Christian will become sinless and lead a life without any wrongdoing. Earlier in his letter, chapter 1, verse 8, he writes, if we say we have no sin, and he's talking about we Christians, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we say that, hey, we're good, we're not sinners, we're just fooling ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he writes, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's chapter 1. That's John writing about justification and the, the daily washing away of our guilt. What he's now talking about in chapter 3 is sanctification, growing in holiness, taking sin out of your habits. Sin remains a factor in a Christian's life, 
but John is telling us it's no longer the dominant factor. Used to be. If you're not a Christian, sin is the dominant force because there's no Holy Spirit in you and all you've got in you is a heart of sin. But as a Christian, a heart of sin has been broken up and the Spirit lives in you and there's a new nature developing. So certainly a Christian must put a stop to sinful habits and chart a new direction of obedience to God. That's how a Christian is known. We find that in verse 7 of 1 John 3. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. John is describing the, the new pattern that takes hold in the Christian, which shapes his new life. And the source of that pattern is God. The person has been born of God. That reminds you of John 3, born of the Spirit, right? It's all the, the work of the divine of our divine God. The Spirit works in us. He regenerates us. A person has the seed of God in him. That's a reference to the Word of God that was planted in our hearts, which ignited faith. This new birth, this seed of God, this, this power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in our hearts, it changes the look of our lives. It cannot help but do so. Do we understand this sufficiently? The power of the Lord Jesus Christ inside of you and me and all believers. Just like you cannot send a hurricane against the east coast of the U.S. and not expect it to do damage, just like you can't expect a tornado to touch down in a major city and not expect things to fly apart, just like you can't light a match to a can of gasoline and not expect it to explode, so you cannot have the seed of God in you, the Word of God in you, and not expect it to do some damage, so to speak. What damage am I talking about? Well, Jesus described the kind of good damage. He said that he came to destroy the works of the devil. That's the damage that the power of Christ's Spirit does. He sends his Spirit in you, in me, to take on the sin that's inside of us, to destroy the works of the flesh inside of us. Yes, the power of Jesus is a destructive force in that way, in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies. It breaks down the power of sin. It breaks the attraction to sin. And, and then very unlike a hurricane or tornado or explosion, it proceeds to build up in us the attraction to love, the attraction to obedience to our Heavenly Father, and it builds up the ability to begin 
doing what's right in God's eyes. It blows up sin and it builds up righteousness in us. Think of the Holy Spirit's force. Think of His power. Is He not infinitely more powerful than a hurricane or tornado or earthquake or volcano? This is the Spirit of the Creator. Don't forget, He created everything out of nothing. We need to embrace this gospel truth as well, keep it clear in our minds. Otherwise, we will not do our part to put this good news into practice because the Spirit of Christ lives in us, this, this ginormous force of power to help purify us of sin, but we need to, as it were, tap into the Spirit's power. We need to pray for the Spirit's power. We need to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ to help us practice righteousness, to help us do the good works, to help de destroy the sinful impulses inside of us and so obey the commands of God. Our calling then is to be regular in prayer for the power of the Spirit to help us resist on the one hand, resist temptation, and on the other hand, to direct our feet into the pathway of obedience. You know, every temptation has a moment. Every temptation has a moment where we have to give our consent, doesn't it? Where we have to say somewhere in our mind, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. And in that moment, we have to believe the Spirit of Christ living in us is able to make us say no. Whatever the temptation, might be small, might be big, your sister may have ripped your favorite shirt and you're angry enough to punch her, but if in your heart you ask God to control your anger, you will receive what you ask for. You might walk by that plate of brownies and they call to you and you want to grab one, but you know it would be unhealthy for you and you, you know you need to rein in your appetite and downsize your eating if in that moment you ask the Lord to, to help you resist the urge to eat. The Lord will help you resist. You may be alone and tempted to scroll through your phone for pornography, but if you say a silent prayer for help to resist that evil, the Spirit of Christ will cause you to put the phone down, walk away. You may have a burning desire to turn to the bottle or to the bud, a desire that feels as powerful as a hurricane maybe. But in that moment, ask the Lord Jesus for help, and the one who created the hurricanes will come to your rescue. He, it's His promise to you.
This is sanctification. This is fighting the good fight. We fight this fight, as it were, on our knees. We fight it in prayer, asking for strength and help from God. We do it in, in, in all the minutes of the day because there's, there's so many temptations that flood us. We do it in those moments of temptation, but we also do it when we're not under pressure. We do it so that we can develop that lifestyle of holiness and purity and good works. We need to then be continuous in prayer, not just in the emergency moments, but also in the regular moments, seeking not just the power to resist sin, but also the power and wisdom to grow in righteousness, to let the obedience of God's commandments flourish in our lives. We need to find out from, from the Scriptures, from the Word, remember this morning's sermon, what God's will is and apply ourselves to doing it because the more we know it, the more we do it, the more the Word is in us, in our hearts, like, like a, that seed John writes about, the more then we will squeeze out sins and their habits from our lives. If you want to be strong in the hour of temptation, then be busy in God's Word day by day to fortify yourselves with better knowledge of His ways and a better understanding of living life with definite meaning and purpose. You know, it's so easy to live for the wrong reason or for no reason at all. In the time of the Reformation, when the Belgic Confession was written, scores of church members were busy trying to do good works, trying to live a life for all the wrong reasons. The Roman church taught people that they had to obey God's commandments in order to earn God's favor. They taught that faith itself was an act of will that one had to do it was the first of the many good works God expected. Well, then Christians, the people like us, they, they started to keep a balance sheet in their minds. They had two columns. One column was good works. The other column was bad works, sins. And Christians were mentally making a tabulation all the time. I, I did so many good works today, stroke those down, uh, but I also did some bad works, and you had to mark them down too. How sad. How sad for such a way of thinking. Can you imagine having to keep that kind of balance sheet? Can you imagine standing before the judge of all the earth, the holy God, with a list in your hand, with those two columns, the good works and the bad works, knowing that even your best works have sin in them? And then having to ask God for His favor on the basis of your good works? Would our hearts and minds not be, as Article 24 says, tossed to and fro without any certainty and our poor consciences be constantly tormented? Who can have any confidence in that? That is not the way. God 
lays out for us to be right with Him. The only way is to trust in the perfect obedience and the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ given for us. That's the only way. We've seen that already in previous sermons. So let's be really, really clear. Doing good works, it's not about getting right with God. It's about showing to the world that we are already right with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The purpose of all these good works, the purpose of our Christian life, the purpose of daily sanctification is so that the work of the Lord Jesus can be on display in our lives. This is God's way of showing to the world His work of grace, His work of salvation. He shows it to the angels in heaven. He shows it to all of creation round about, even to the devils below. And He looks upon it Himself with favor because it's His work. So that all the praise and honor can go up to Him. You know, when a loving and faithful father raises up a son or daughter to follow in his footsteps, the father is honored. The mother is too, but let me just stick with the father for a moment. It reflects on the father. Well, how much more true that is with the heavenly father and his children if we pursue holiness, it's because of Him. It reflects on Him. It, the credit goes to Him. We pursue good works so that He may be glorified. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful side effect. You know what that is? As we pursue good works, it makes us ready. Ready for what? Ready for the next life. Christ is throughout this life stripping away sin from us out of our hearts, and He's clothing us more and more with righteous thinking and speaking and acting so that as our life progresses, we'll be the more ready for what He's got in store to live with our righteous Savior in the presence of our righteous Father on His new and spotless earth, what Scripture calls the home of righteousness. Righteous living now prepares us for that righteous life to come. Amen.